I'm afraid the darkest hours of hell lie before you. I don't think they'll kill you, Lawrence. But they will blame you. The beast will have its day. The beast will out. Hello and welcome to a spooky episode of Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast all about the films that time butchered in their sleeps. I'm the bloated corpse of Gareth Green, and joining me today is my full-time co-host and part-time scream queen, Andrew Phillips. Ah, Classic. That was like a fucking blowout scream. (laughs) (laughs) And beware the moon for this week's episode as we watch the host of talented filmmakers and actors attempt to escape the clutches of development hell in Joe Johnson's The Wolfman. Should we grant this man-eater one last chance or does this dog need putting down? Your answers await beyond the trailer! It was 25 years ago that my father found him. He was torn to pieces and half-eaten. Whatever did it was big, and Buckshot couldn't kill it. After that, my father went home and cast silver bullets. Wouldn't leave the house on a full moon from then on. Lo and behold, prodigal son returns. Hello, father. You've come for the funeral. What happened? Your brother's body was found in a ditch. He'd been torn to pieces. If there's anything you need, please let me know. I want to know what happened to him. Francis Aberline, Scotland Yard. I cannot stress enough the mortal peril you're in. What kind of animal could have done such a thing? You're risking your life. Darkness comes for you. He's been quite seriously injured. Thank you for staying with me. Now we know it's still out there. You were bitten by the beast. You bear his mark now. Do you believe in curses? <laughs> you have to leave. What are you afraid of? There are those who doubt the power to change men into beasts. A beast has come among us. Terrible things, Lawrence. You've done terrible things. Be strong, sir. Be strong. I am what they say I am. I'm a monster. I will kill all of you! Let me help you. Universal's butchering of Joe Johnson's The Wolfman boasts Benicio Del Toro in dual roles as both an actor struggling against a famous Hollywood monster out of control and hell-bent on ruining his life and as Lawrence Talbot, the film's lead. 
After the brutal slaying of his brother, Lawrence is called back to his childhood home to face not only the memories of his past, but a bloodthirsty creature wreaking havoc on the locals at the sign of every full moon. Emily Blunt, Anthony Hopkins and Hugo Weaven all struggle to give a shit in supporting roles. So Andy, I heard this is your first battle with Joe Johnson's The Wolfman. Yeah, I remember the film when it came out. I remember the adverts being on the buses. Yeah. And I thought it looked pants. I never saw it. Yeah, which is a fair estimate. I don't think the marketing for this film is particularly great. No, I don't think many people saw it. And no. a lot of the production problems that they encountered making the film were like heavily publicized at the time. Yeah, I mean, even not knowing about that, I saw the poster for the film and went don't really fancy that looks a little generic yeah yeah i can see that and with the likes of your underworld films coming out and stuff like that it's not like werewolves weren't a done thing even then yeah not like it was something unique yeah yeah i mean i'm not the world's biggest horror fan but uh yeah it didn't do enough to entice me see i am a big horror fan i've always been interested in horror growing up especially like gore films which i'm not so much interested in anymore Mm. but back in the day i used to watch films just if they had a little bit of bloodshed in them that would be a reason to see it (laughs) (laughs) but with the wolfman i remember every single production problem that actually came up with the film and i was curious more than anything to see if they actually had a film when all was said and done And to see what the result of all these problems were, which we will get into later because it was a torturous history for this film. Yeah, and it is a bit of a miracle that it is as good as it is, to be honest, because it could have been much worse. And the theatrical cut was a complete mess. Yeah. Um, you could see all of the problems up there on screen. It didn't know what it wanted to be. It was mm. tonally inconsistent. So I've heard from a few people that the unrated extended cut slash director's cut slash whatever is actually something of an improvement over the Mm. theatrical cut and actually fixes a few of the problems. So that's the version that we're going to give a go in today's episode. Yeah, you're the one that recommended me to watch that version because on um, all copies of the Blu-ray and DVD, there are both versions of the film. It's kind of interesting to note that even when you pop the Blu-ray in, it kind of directs you to the unrated version over the theatrical. It's like kind of says, watch this version instead. Yeah. Don't watch the theatrical there. It's just there as a uh, formality. I'm sure they would just want to get rid of that version entirely. <laughs> and it makes me laugh that they've called it the unrated version when it doesn't feature any extra gore or no. bloodshed. <laughs> it's just simply all character development and atmosphere and kind of mood setting scenes. Yeah. Which they should have ju- called it the more depth version yeah in-depth version <laughs> to be honest they probably could have got away with just releasing the unrated version and not bothering with the theatrical yeah um so shall we actually talk about just a few of the production problems that this film encountered a few before we get into the film itself because we really need to set the scene that things weren't going well for the wolfman no i think that's going to be half the episode just <laughs> talking about the, all the problems with this film because it's uh it had many one of which is actually the director exited the film four weeks weeks before it was to begin shooting with studio space already hired and sets already built it was originally going to be directed by mark romanek with a script by andrew kevin walker as far as i know he left over creative differences over the tone of the film but mainly because he wanted more money and he wanted more time yeah and after he left universal went on to subsequently actually spend more money on the film and yeah. take more time <laughs> Well, he wanted 20 extra days yeah, because the original schedule was for 80 days, uh, which for a film like this is quite slander. Yeah. And they said no. And because Romanek is a director who has 
integrity it's somewhat i'd say in some ways too much integrity because he seems to walk from films quite often he's only actually made two films <laughs> so <Yeah>. far <laughs> in the last 15 years one hour photo <laughs> and never let me go and yet he seems to get his name attached to so many different projects yeah. at the moment it's attached to a the shining prequel yep <laughs> which i'm actually holding out hope for yeah we'll see <laughs> it probably means it's never gonna get made so no. any of those diehard the shining fans need not worry yet no <laughs> But um, yeah, he walked and I think it was one of those things where if he'd walked a little bit earlier, they may have pushed production back. Yeah. But because it was so soon before they actually started rolling the cameras, there was nothing they could really do. Everything was set in place. Everybody had been hired and everything was ready to go. And um, the next director had no pre-production time at all. And that really dictated what kind of director they would be able to hire. Yeah. And two, it really dictates exactly what they can do. So after Mark Romanek left, what directors were they looking at to take his place? Well, they were looking at all sorts of people. I mean, they were looking at people like John Landis and Frank Darabont. But on the other end of the spectrum, they were looking at people like Martin Campbell and... uh, Brett Ratner? Brett Ratner. I mean, Brett Ratner was at the forefront. He was literally... He thought he was going to get the job. I can see why they probably touted Brett Ratner at one point, considering that he's shown that he can imitate somebody else's style with Red Dragon. Yeah. But he doesn't really bring any character to his films. No. He's just a workman. I'd probably actually say Red Dragon's probably his best film. It is. It really is. (laughs) Probably the best source material that he's had. But even that, it could be so much more with that source material. Of course. Brett Ratner, although he doesn't make a bad film, he makes a pretty decent film. He doesn't do much with it. It's a lot of surface level stuff. Mm. Yeah, so they had all these guys in mind. I mean, in terms of your Frank Darabonts and your John Landises, they would have been great if they'd had more time in pre-production. Yeah, they're filmmakers with visions as well. And at that point, they didn't need a filmmaker with a vision. They needed a filmmaker that could just make a film. Yeah, they didn't need an auteur. They just wanted a workman-like director. So you get people like Brett Ratner, and then ultimately they got Joe Johnston. Who is probably one of the better workman-like directors out there. yeah. I mm. have a very up and down relationship with mm. Joe Johnson, but when he hits, he hits very well. Mm. Looking at the Rocketeer and Jumanji, for instance. Yeah, and the first half of Captain America. Definitely. Although but- I'm just going to chalk up the problems with Captain America, not to <laughs> Joe Johnson, just considering how Marvel used to work, let's yeah. say. Yeah. But um, yeah, he joined three weeks before they started, so they must have had a week where they were just going, we need to find people. So uh, I can only imagine what that would have been like in the offices at Universal. Oh my God, could you imagine this it? Film. People pulling out their hair. Yeah. And even in that time, three weeks before the film was to begin shooting, he still had to rewrite the script. He hired another writer with David Self. Yeah. And together they just completely rewrote the script in three weeks. Yeah, and they did a bit of casting as well at that time. I'm not sure who got cast or yeah. recast in that period, but some parts did change. Yeah, a couple of people dropped out, I'm yeah. sure I heard. I think yeah. Emily Blunt might have been a last-minute casting decision. Oh, I don't, right, okay. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that might be the case, because at this point in her career, she was still very much a um, indie actress. She hadn't done that many mainstream films. This was probably her first really big film, I'm thinking. I'm not... No, and it's I was tr- almost surprised when she was even building this film, actually. No, and it's strange to think, I've only just realised now that this is a nice little precursor for Cesario 
where she works with Benicio Del Toro again in that yeah. film. I watched Cesario the other day and I never made the connection that they're both working <laughs> together. I think it's because her character is a little bit of a non-entity in The Wolfman. Oh, yeah. It doesn't yeah, make it's... much of an impact, even though she is a great actress by her own right. Yeah, I mean, if, if she is a last-minute replacement, that kind of makes sense because I'd imagine she wouldn't have very much time to prepare for it yeah. or create something. I'm not sure who else changed over, but... The cinematographer seems to be one of Joe Johnson's regular yeah. uh, crew members. Yeah, and I think there were a couple of location changes as well. Yeah. Apart from that, I think everyone else was pretty much locked in from the Romanic version. Yeah, and Joe Johnson did say of Mark Romanek that he fortunately made a lot of the right decisions before yeah, he- Joe Johnson jumps on board. Which meant that there were things that he couldn't change that Mark Romanek had chose to do and certain design paths that they had gone down that were just unchangeable at this point. But fortunately for Joe Johnson, he was very kind of commendable about the choices that Mark Romanek made. Yeah. But, and um, you can see that in the final film because it looks great in terms of the set design, the production design oh, yeah. looks great. And the, the cinematography, even though it's one of Joe Johnson's regulars, he captures that set really well. Yeah. It's kind of ironic that the one thing that wasn't in place and got changed quite dramatically or hadn't really been decided on was the look of the Wolfman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the most important bit. Because it seems that Rick Baker, who was the guy who was tasked with doing all the makeup for the Wolfman, uh, he joined fairly early on in pre-production. He had been on there at least six months before they yeah. had this Uh, Do we have to introduce Rick Baker to our audience? I'm sure that they will already know him, but just to give a couple of examples of his work, you've got American Werewolf in London. Yeah, and you've got all the uh, Planet of the Apes. Oh, brilliant. I mean, that's probably one of the best parts of the whole film. Oh, the design of that film, the look of it is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you've got so many. You've got Harry and the Hendersons, you've got the Grinch. Harry and the Hendersons, I remember that. He won an Oscar for the Grinch, didn't he? Uh, So he was tasked with doing it. He actually lobbied to do it because he was under sure whether they were going to go down a cgi route mm. but he had heard about it that they were going to do a remake of the wolfman and he actually went around the universal offices and asked who was actually doing it yeah because uh, he really wanted to do it because it was one of the films that inspired him to actually go into makeup work in the first place and it's clear to see when you look at his um filmmaking past just what an impact the wolfman had on him yeah. as a special effects filmmaker yeah so um, he started working on The Wolfman with Mark Romanek, but they couldn't come to a an agreement as to how The Wolfman should look. So with the original director, a lot of time was wasted on different concepts for Benicio Del Toro as The Wolfman. And Benicio Del Toro was set for the part a long time before because like Rick Baker, this was a project that was a dream project for Benicio Del Toro. He loves The Wolfman. He's a massive fan yeah, of Universal Monsters. championed this version mm. of the film. And he actually has a producer credit, yeah. not an executive producer credit, a full-on yeah. producer credit yeah. on the film. This is his baby. And I feel so sorry for him. <laughs> yeah, it must have been really disheartening seeing all this fall apart around yeah. him. And um, they couldn't quite decide on how to go about it because comparing it to his earlier work on American Wolf in London, you're dealing with somebody who looked quite youthful in that film and was essentially wasn't a very hairy man going into an extreme hairy state. Whereas with Benicio del Toro, he's kind of halfway there anyway. He looks wolvish. He, he's a very dark, hairy man. Yes. So you wouldn't actually have to do that much to get him into that wolf man state. And there's and, something primitive about the way that he looks as well. Yeah. There's something like animalistic in the way that he looks anyway. Yeah. 
And um, they couldn't quite decide how they were balancing these two elements in terms of the Wolfman makeup and Benicio Del Toro as a look. Yeah. So they had a lot of disagreements. And I think Baker and Del Toro, they really wanted to not stray too far from the original designs from the 1941 film. They wanted to stay true to that kind of look. Yeah, I watched the 1941 film last night in preparation for this episode just Mm -hmm. to compare and contrast. And it does look reminiscent of the original Wolfman, this version of the Wolfman. Mm. And I think it's kind of funny that when Jay Johnston took over... (laughs) He basically gave him carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. Uh, And he actually went back to his second design. I think they'd done about 50 or 60 of these designs. And he went back to the second one, which was just a refinement of the original (laughs) one that he'd done. So they did a lot of work for nothing. Well, if anything, this film was an exercise in wasting time and losing money. Pretty much in every single facet of of its making. Because going on to another thing about the rewrite of this film... They actually stripped out a lot of Mark Romanek's and Andrew Kevin Walker's work. They cut a couple of action scenes and um, stripped back the ending of the film as well to save money. Mm. And in the long run, that ended up costing them because they had to do reshoots to (laughs) reinsert the action scene and beef up the end of the film. Seems to happen time and time again. And unfortunately, the Wolfman is a victim of this process. Yeah. And um, all the main thing relating to this Wolfman design is because of the time wasted in deciding what the Wolfman would look like and this changeover in directors, they never really worked out how the transformation scenes would actually be applied. So it obviously hadn't been decided when Mark Romanek was involved, which is kind of odd, seeing that it's a yeah. big part of the film. And seeing how close to production that he actually left the film, it still wasn't decided by that point, four weeks yeah. to go. That's very odd, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, but um, when Joe Johnston came on board, he kind of felt that he had no choice but to do the transformation scenes in CGI because they just ran out of prep time to actually saw any of these mechanical aspects out in terms of when you do mechanical effects, it's all in the pre-production, it's all, in the, it it's all in the forethought, and they didn't have any time to do it, so they would literally just have to film Del Toro and work it out later, Yeah, which is one of the problems of the film anyway. Joe Johnson talks up the CGI in the making of on the uh, Blu-ray disc, but I think if he looked back at it now, he would see something slightly different. Yeah, it's one of those things that we can't really judge too much because we weren't there. No. And I know Rick Baker was a little bit annoyed because he knew that it would never look as good because I know that the guys doing the CGI didn't really have much knowledge of how the makeup was created. So it's kind of no wonder that the CG looks like it does. Um, because he, in an interview, he said, uh, CGI in the hands of talented people will look great. And it's like any discipline when it's in the hands of less talented people or people without time or resources, it's always going to look a bit dodgy. And unfortunately, Wolfman falls into this trap. Yeah, and it falls hard. Yeah, because there's a divide in quality between the practical work and the CGI work. Uh, there's a couple of CGI moments that work well, but by and large, they don't work at yeah, all. They miss more than hit. Yeah, but I have to commend the actual look of the wolfman even knowing all that production history of how long it took them to actually come to a decision on what he would look like practically in those moments when it is a practical wolf he looks fantastic yeah i even like the han solo get up (laughs) he looks like a classic movie monster and joe johnson gets him to just strike the right poses he has all these kind of like power poses that are very reminiscent of the 1941 version of the wolfman and i love all those moments in this film that's when it's at its best 
Yeah, and um, I probably got the words dodgy CGI written down at least 20 odd times in my notes because there are just so many moments, not even just to do with the creature, but to do with the other elements of the film that are pretty poor. Some of these effects look like they were made like I was comparing them earlier to uh, the first Harry Potter film. Yes. Where it was a little bit slapdash. Yeah. <laughs> it feels very slapdash at times. It all screams rush production yeah. and we'll finish it in post. Yeah. And like a lot of films that have production issues and especially films like this where they are going for a period piece and we're going to talk about this in pretty much all aspects of production. It is a film that falls between two stools. Yes. It is trying to be a classic 1940s horror story, like a monster movie. Which is when it works best, in my opinion. But it's stuck between being that and being a modern, contemporary horror film with all the things that come with that. And it never becomes either. And it suffers because it's neither one thing or the other. Not that modern and contemporary horrors are particularly great, because most of them are absolute shit, but it becomes a mix of those two things. It's weird that in one scene I can compare it to a very classical universal horror monster movie. But in the next scene I'm comparing it to a late 90s slasher film. A cheap late 90s slasher film with its jump scares. and Yeah, because you've got some great production values. The cinematography is really great. And uh, it's shot on film. So all those elements are really classical and old school. And then you've got all this other crap in the mix that's just messing it up, really. It's been undercut in the edit. Yeah. You can see that that wasn't the intention while they were making the film. But the edit of this film was very torturous in and of itself as well. Mm. And that's where even this version of the film has fallen apart. To actually talk about the editing for a second, it went through (laughs) three separate editors, five weeks of reshoots, and two composers, actually, or three composers, if you consider the fact that Danny Elfman came back. Well, there's a lot of contention as to whether Danny Elfman actually did come back or whether he just allowed his music to be used. And this probably is the more accurate one, is that Danny Elfman allowed his music to be used, but probably wasn't involved that much because they probably pissed him off too much anyway because it's another, it's a similar situation to Spider-Man 2. Yeah, to lay down the situation, he was hired and turned in a score that was deemed far too classical for the type of film film. that Universal wanted for some reason. So he was fired and uh, Paul Haslinger was hired to uh, deliver a more contemporary rock and roll electronic version of the Wolfman score. And then that version of the score was dropped (laughs) and they went back to Danny Elfman's version and hired Conrad Pope to actually finish it off. Yeah, that's just a classic case of micromanagement and again, not knowing what they want to do. And that's the thing. I think what happened was Danny Elfman probably would have come back on a um, a very minimalist level and i think a lot of the other linking music was written by conrad pope and a couple of other guys just to uh, make sure everything fit yeah because it does have a really good theme which is very reminiscent of francis ford coppola's dracula mm. um, which was by Wojciech killer that's what he was basing his music on and and it's a great sound it's a great idea to go with and that's exactly the type of score that the wolfman needed But the film itself plays on that far too much. You can tell that that's probably one of two themes that Danny Elfman actually came up with. And the rest of it almost feels like mood music. Yeah. Just connect those two themes as the film goes on. That may or may not have been Danny Elfman's fault. Because I know that one of the reasons that they decided to get rid of the score originally because it was too repetitive. Ah, So I'm not sure who's really to blame. I think it's one of those things where there's lots of people to blame rather than just one person. I think it's a couple of people at fault. Maybe even Danny Elfman himself, maybe not budging. I'm not sure. Okay, so that's just a selection of what went wrong with The Wolfman. But few films have actually survived worse productions. 
So Andy, I've got to ask, do you think the Wolfman survived development hell, or was it another unfortunate victim? Which version of the Wolfman? Well, the version we watched is the unrated version, but we both have experience with the theatrical. You watched some of it the other day. Yeah, theatrical cut, definitely not. Yes. It falls down immediately. I mean, it, mm. it literally stumbles at the first hurdle because it loses so much at the beginning. The theatrical cut is a studio cut that's trying to be a bog-standard horror monster movie. Yeah. And that's basically the cut that lost it money and lost it any kind of respect. That is the version that is why we're talking about this film today. Yes. The extended version, not so much. The extended version is a uh, half-decent film. Yeah. There is a great film in there somewhere, but even with its limitations, it's by no means a terrible film. I think even judging it just on the unrated version, it's still an exercise in wasted potential. Oh, yeah. yeah. But saying that, it's still far better than it has any right to be knowing that production history. Oh, yeah, yeah. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it as well. And it's slower than the theatrical version. It's more interesting in the characters. It's more character involved. It sets a better tone straight from the off and it's dripping with atmosphere throughout. It's still got plenty of problems, but I actually liked the unrated version of The Wolfman, whereas I walked out of the cinema after the theatrical version thinking that, Jesus Christ, what a clusterfuck <laughs> of a film. Well, we should probably start calling this the extended version rather than unrated because there's nothing unrated about it. Yeah, it's anybody that's an going into version. this version of the film wanting to see gore is going to be sorely disappointed yeah. because it's just all character development I that mean, should have been in the film anyway. Way. This is the true version of the film. This is the version of the film they should have released. I think it would have gotten much more respectable reviews had they released this two-hour version. Yeah. But I think it's one of those things where they just wanted to get the bombs on seats. That's it. You keep it under 100 minutes, you maybe fit one or two more screenings in per day. I and think they get more money in that opening weekend. I think it's a combination of that and the fact that it's an R-rated film. They wanted that as insurance, but it cripples the film so badly. Because that was another thing that we heard a lot about in the lead-up to the release of this film. And one of the rumours that kept coming out of the film was that Universal wanted to recut it for a PG-13. So I was quite shocked to see that mm. it got the R rating, and it was yeah. actually as gory as it was in the final version. Yeah, I'm still umming and ahhing as to whether it actually needed to be R-rated in certain aspects, because there are some uh, really schlocky things, but we'll probably go into that part later. Yeah. But um, this extended version is 17 minutes longer than the uh, theatrical version, and about five to six minutes of the extra footage is in the first... 10 minutes of the film yeah and it's the bit which is the most glaring emission because in the theatrical version the way they handle this part of the film is actually atrocious i actually had to stop the film text you and tell you how shit it was because i was just astounded at how poorly handled this part of the film was because i watched the extended version first so for me that was kind of the definitive version of the film for me yeah and then watching the theatrical version i was just so astounded at how awful this part was So in the extended, we get to see the prologue, which is the same in both versions of the film, with the brother being killed. Immediately after that is the character of Gwen coming to see Lawrence, and we get a bit of the performance of the show that he's actually doing. So we actually get to see him as an actor, and then she comes to actually confront him and ask him to come to Blackmore because her fiancé, which is his brother, has gone missing. And she has to persuade him to actually come up and he's very reluctant at doing so. We get to know instantly that there's some bad blood between Lawrence and his past, his father. And he's completely estranged from them. And there's a reluctance to him going back to his childhood home because of that. All of that is lost. In we also get the, the reason why he's an American version. guy when everyone else is British. Yeah, <laughs> because he lived in America yeah. for most of his life. Yeah. 
that is completely omitted in the theatrical version. Uh, when I watched it, I was constantly asking myself, why is he speaking with this weird quasi-American English accent? And that's explained <laughs> in the extended version. Yeah. And another thing about the theatrical version is that Lawrence as a character is an actor that never acts. Yeah. We, ne- we never get to see him do that. At least here, we do. We get one shot in the theatrical version. So after this scene where she persuades him to go he gets on a train and is travelling to Blackmore when he meets a uh, uncredited Max von Sydow who has a bit of dialogue with him about this wolf head cane yeah. and talking about where it came from there's a bit where he falls asleep and then this guy disappears you're never quite sure whether it's something mystical or mysterious yeah it feels like there's a real sense of foreboding exactly it sets the tone straight away and i'm baffled by the reason as to why universal cut this scene from the film it's it's another famous face as well in max von Sydow, and it does a lot of work in establishing the tone and the atmosphere and you get the introduction of that famous Wolfman Kane, mm. which is a kind of iconic prop from the original 1941 version of the film. Yeah. It is kind of funny that in the uh, theatrical version, he's not in the film because all this is glossed over, but he still gets a slight credit in the end credits where it, it says assistant to Mr. Von Sydow. Yeah. Uh, Catherine Von Sydow. And it's a little bit weird if someone went past there and went, who's Max Von Sydow was in this? Uh, yeah. And then there's a slightly more protracted where he gets on the, the horse and carriage and then gets to the mansion. And this whole sequence is about five minutes. So tell me, how does the theatrical version of this film start? <laughs> so this is all done in montage. And the only parts we get are the literally one clip of the stage show which is hamlet which is a long shot so you don't really get to see him do anything the rest of it is all horse-drawn carriage stuff intercut with a shot of emily blunt from behind writing a letter to lawrence and she's basically just narrating what she's writing yeah literally that's it she's just writing for him to come up and he comes up there's no conflict there at all and then we just immediately jump to the mansion and the house and him entering the house and we get to see Anthony Hopkins within the first four minutes. Yeah, Whereas in the extended, it's about ten minutes before you see him. Yeah, this theatrical version loses all the character establishment and the development. It loses many story beats and plenty of setups. It's all in an effort to get to the action quicker. All this is just to get to, one, the next wolf attack quicker, because in the theatrical it's about 20 minutes, whereas in the extended it's about half an hour, and to get to Del Toro's eventual transformation into the Wolfman sooner, because in the extended it's after the hour mark, and in the theatrical it's around about 45 minutes. So literally that's all it's there for, and it's, again, just one of those things where they just want to make a monster movie without any of the other trappings, and everything else is not important and it's also sacrificed in the pursuit of just making this cheap monster movie really that uh, no one's going to remember which is why we're doing it on this show (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's cheap and that is creatively cheap yeah but it's budget skyrocketed far out of control and i mean i think if they hadn't had all these problems it might have even made its money back (laughs) yeah but it has no reason to be the budget that it was no not Um, at all this is a 150 million dollar film yeah and we'll get into just what that means for it when we talk about the gross uh, later on (laughs) But there is no reason for it to cost that amount of money. This should have been a $100 million film at most. Oh, yeah. I and mean, it would have I, certainly made its money back. I imagine there's been a lot of expenditure on the uh, reshoots and things like that. Because to remount a film like this is more costly than just extending the schedule. Yeah. Because you have to get everybody back and, it's, and new people if they're not available. and so. Exactly. And we're not talking about for a couple of weeks of reaction shots. We are talking about entirely new sequences filmed yeah. over a period of five weeks, mm-hmm. which is uh, just unnecessarily huge of an amount. It adds up. 
Okay, so before we go any further, I think it's time for us to give a brief overview of the story. Okay, so the Wolfman begins with the death of Ben Talbot. Yeah. Who is killed by a monster who is unseen, apart from its hand. Yeah, and not James Spader is killed by <laughs> a un- an unseen force. <laughs> and that's Lawrence Talbot's brother. We don't realise this at all until about half of the film. No. He just looks like random person, number one. Yeah, there's this whole brother element going on through the film. Um, we see flashbacks and we get to see the other brother who's played by Asa Butterfield in one of his first yeah. roles, actually. I didn't even notice when watching the film. It was only when I looked at the credits and I saw his name pop up. But you can tell that that used to be a much heavier element in a previous version of the script mm-hmm. because there are a few holdovers where you get to see more of the brother when it's completely unnecessary. Yes, yes. So Lawrence is called back to his childhood home in an effort to track down just who killed his brother or what killed his brother. Yeah, it's a bit of a funny one because there's like a mystery element that comes into play very early on and then it disappears all of a sudden when they say, um, oh, He's missing, we're looking for him, and then as soon as he gets to where he needs to get to, his dad just goes, oh, we found him, he's dead. (laughs) And it's just like, I I don't understand why they even played on that earlier element if all along that he was dead. He just could have said that he's dead, um, you need to come up for the funeral or something like that. You didn't need to have the other element. I think it could have actually, like, Lawrence Talbot turned up, his father comes out and says, oh, sorry, no, he's dead, and then Lawrence Talbot fucks off again. (laughs) Like, all right, see, there's no reason for me to be here. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) So there is a mystery element, though, that's set up at this point as to who is the wolf man that killed Ben Talbot. Yeah. But it's just one of those things that you can see from a million miles away. And it kind of abandons it around about the fun. At the first transformation, it really makes it plainly obvious as to who is the creature that killed Ben Talbot. Yeah. But before we get to that, um, there's a gypsy camp that's around the local village at around about the same time. Yes. Some of the locals think that the gypsies are responsible for Ben Talbot's death. Yeah. And perhaps there is some kind of black magic involved. Gypsy magic. Gypsy magic, yeah. Yeah. And the, they have a dancing bear. They think that that could be responsible for Ben Talbot's death. The dancing bear previously featured in The Golden Compass. <laughs> yeah, it's actually a holdover CGI work a, from The Golden Compass. It's a CGI model <laughs> that they've just retouched to be a brown bear rather than a polar bear. It looks shocking as well. It's really obvious. Fortunately, mercifully, I should say, it is in the film not that much. It's only in for a couple of shots. Yeah, but it's unfortunate that it's in there at all, along with the horrible CGI deer as well. Yeah, later on in the film, there's a deer that's just horribly CGI. I can't think that it would be really that hard to find animals for these roles. They don't move correctly. They move far too quick for the animals that they are, especially the deer. The deer's sort of jumping around like fucking Donkey from Shrek. Yeah. It's like, it moves like a cartoon. Yeah, it does. It's really awful, and it has no place in this kind of film. When you're dealing with a film that's dealing with all these classical elements, having stuff like that in there, it, it takes you out of the film completely. Yeah. Awful. So one of the first places that Lawrence Talbot goes to is to the gypsy camp to find out if there's any truth to mm. these rumours that the gypsies are responsible for his brother's death. Yeah. And it's during his time there that the camp actually comes under attack from a force unseen. It's one of those scenes where everybody's in it. Yes. So you get all the villagers and uh, I think everybody apart from 
Emily Blunt's in that scene. Yeah. It's one of those minor peaks in the film where everybody yeah. comes together for a moment before, you know. Well, everyone comes together to get bumped off, really. That's, yeah. that's what's happened. And uh, it's um, kind of a funny one, actually, because I think it wastes some of the villagers. They uh, get killed off far too soon. Yeah. Because it makes quite a big deal of the villagers being suspicious of the Talbot household and thinking that everything's and cursed. And You've got a host of, like, great character actors in yeah. these roles as well. Um, and they get oh, what's his name from Pirates of the Caribbean? Uh, David gets Schofield. Off. David Schofield. Yeah. Gets and he gets dispatched scene. very quickly but in a great way oh, yeah i love the scene it virtually grabs him by his chin with its fingers coming from out of his mouth and yeah. drags him inside somewhere not before it's bitten half his hand off that's it yeah <laughs> which i wasn't expecting i was like oh wow this is much more gory than i thought it was gonna be yeah i like a lot of the gore in this film considering at one point people were thinking this was going to be a pg-13 i was really pleasantly surprised by the gore i know that you're not big on unnecessary violence yeah in films, i mean really. that was a moment i didn't mind so much there were some of the other ones later on that i thought that we were a bit the only reason i thought they were schlocky was just in the execution, execution yeah. i didn't like the horrible modern horror you know you get these really cheap modern horror films where they do all the gore but they don't do it real they just do it like cgi gore cgi gore it's because shit. it's so much easier to shoot because they can do as many takes as they want yeah there's none of this kind of we have to get it right in this first take because yeah. it takes so long to reset it's yeah. all like ah no we'll just do as many takes as we can and just add the gore and yeah post. well i only have to reiterate john moore's version of the omen yeah for something oh like my that God, that yeah. deals with that kind of thing um this is one of these films that doesn't do what the omen did because the omen is a terrible film uh the remake not the original but the remake of the omen <laughs> by uh celebrated shit director john moore he made len wiseman's die hard 4.0 like it was <laughs> a fucking die hard <laughs> but um that film's all set in prague and tries to make it look like london when it's obviously prague at least this film actually is set and made in Britain, yeah, uh, which is something. <laughs> but it falls into some of the same traps in terms of the... Um, there's this kind of um, Final Destination vibe to some of the killings in The Omen and a little bit in The Wolfman where there's these very poorly handled CGI effects gore scenes. And the most prominent one is of a villager... He's escaping from the Wolfman and he falls into a bog and the Wolfman comes and literally snatches his head off. Yeah, I like the setup of that scene. I like the concept. It's kind of wickedly funny. Yeah. But it is that shot of him kind of swiping its head off. Yeah, like clean off. If you if you were to do that in real life, you'd get a lot more blood and gore blood, and things. Blood, skin, and, yeah, and, yeah. And like just things ripping out. It feels too just, clean. It feels too clean, yeah. And um, like you say, with the, the remake of The Omen, the most famous kill out of the original Omen, which is David Warner's death, which yeah. is the character played by David Thewlis in the remake, his death is so unbelievably awful in yeah. the remake. Literally, it's like a sign that spins around and it's a horrible CGI head that comes off. And it's just bollocks. The thing about the original version of The Omen by Richard Donner that makes those kills look so good is that they could all be accidents in their own right. Yeah. Whereas there is no question as to what is behind the kills in this remake because they're so convoluted and complicated, it has to be supernatural. Yeah. Because I think comparing The Wolfman against the original Omen is actually quite a good one because I feel like at times it's going for that tone. Yeah. That kind of real gothic tone yeah but then it gets a bit of that omen remake pushed into there as well it is it's trying to do what francis ford coppola did with dracula in that he's trying to create something that harkens back to the 1940s universal horror movie films but whereas francis ford coppola does it by keeping all of the effects in camera and Mm -hmm. uses all of these old techniques so that all of the special effects even the um like for instance there's a shot 
in Dracula where the camera swoops through a courtyard and it drops frames. It feels jerky. All that was done in camera. It wasn't done in post on the yeah, edit. He yeah. actually came up with a camera that did this technique where yeah. it just dropped frames randomly. And it created this cool technique. But it all created this idea that this film could have been made in the 1940s. Yeah. Like when Dracula was. It's mm. just the Wolfman. It's trying to do that. But at the same time, it's full of this kind of CGI nonsense and all of these kind of modern slasher trappings where you've got these jump scares and flashes on the screen where it's just <laughs> been yeah exactly like that. <laughs> I actually jumped <laughs> but it's it's got all these kind of like modern late dun, 90s dun. oh no nah, no nah, too far uh, now yeah. you've gone you've gone full, you've gone full wolfman you never go full wolfman <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's got all those trappings that just kind of hold the film back. It yeah. doesn't feel like it could have been made back then. Whereas it should it should feel like that. Yeah, it's got all that on its shoulders and it really cheapens the film for me. There's, there's so many moments in the film that drag it down to sort of B-movie yeah. level when it really should be um, an A-movie, really. It's got all the pedigree to be an A-movie, but it um, unfortunately falls short of those ambitions because of these things that are applied to it. Yeah. And only certain parts of it, that's the thing. It's not um it's not even as if all of it's like this. It's only certain parts of it. It's just some of that's just a real letdown. So going back to the gypsy camp. Yeah, he gets bitten in uh, not Stonehenge. Yeah, because he actually sees the wolfman yeah. and chases it to this kind of weird Stonehenge type yeah, location. Yeah. Which I, I like. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, very yeah. British. It's very kind of yeah. like ancient British. It's very hammer horror with all the smoke and everything. Oh, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of something from Quatermass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But um yeah, so at this point he is attacked by the wolfman and bitten but is fortunately saved by the locals and that's when the wolfman curse is kind of bestowed upon him by whom we do not know at this point but everybody knows it's anthony hopkins <laughs> <laughs> the uh, backstory between lawrence and sir john who's anthony hopkins character the reason that they're estranged is because lawrence finds that his mother seemingly committed suicide and he has this vision of his father holding her and she's got a uh, a shaving razor blade yes and it looks like she's like a cutthroat cut yeah yeah and uh, he seems to have taken issue with this and he's been sent to an asylum for an early part of his life and because of this he's um, escaped the family home and become this actor who's lived elsewhere and doesn't really have anything to do with his father and he's obviously had to come back so going back to the talbot household we do get this sequence in which lawrence is in the throes of some kind of nightmare yeah it is i guess he keeps seeing a young boy wolf thing yeah it's the young feral boy throughout all these other feverish scenes you get little flashbacks to that and um just replays of various events in his life and then it turns out later on when you discover that Anthony Hopkins is also a werewolf himself and they actually killed his wife and that this feral boy that he keeps seeing must be some sort of throwback. Yeah, like to, a genetic memory. Uh, yeah, to um, Sir John's memory of being bitten by this feral boy in India, I think. Yeah, it was, yeah. It's where he met Singh, wasn't it? Yes. He's played by Art Malik. Who in is- a completely thankless role. <laughs> He's, he's in it for what must amount to about six scenes, Ugh. about five minutes worth of footage, and he's... Yeah. What a great actor, completely wasted in yeah. this film. We keep going back to Art Malik as <laughs> yeah. well. He seems to be a fucking staple of best forgotten movies. The only thing I can think of is that his part was much more substantial in the Mark Ramonek it has to be. version of it, and he's just a holdover from that. I think it must have played more on the origins of the Wolfman, where this curse came from, and maybe we might have seen something of a flashback, maybe. 
yeah, you know, I, more, more of what we see in this version of yeah, the Yeah, because I just can't imagine Art Malik signing on to a role which is little more than a servant role. Yeah, it's a servant role, and all he's only there, really, to look for an, an well, exotic he's, he's, element he's to the just film. There it's just to, so fucking basic and stock. Yeah, he's just there to reinforce that India backstory. Yeah. Because there's no other reason for him to be Indian. He doesn't have any real character at all. Yeah. It's a real shame. And they make him look like the most cliched Indian person that's, ever. That's it. They, 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 they dress it so stereotypically yeah. and stock. It's, it's, I can't see him being happy with this. No. <laughs> no. But yeah. going back to the mother thing, I actually really like this element of the film. It's one of the things that I think grabs me about this film is that it plays with this whole Oedipus-like complex between the father and the son. Lawrence yeah. is obsessed with the idea of his mother, but the film doesn't play on it enough. And the it's, cycle's repeating itself now with the character of Gwen. It's the similar yes. thing. Yeah, because there's a vague curse about the Wolfman. It's played upon in the original 1941 film that the Wolfman will kill the person it loves, which is strange. I don't know why, but it's just one of the curses of the Wolfman. Yeah, I guess. and this is also subject to the uh, how they, again, couldn't decide what film they wanted to make. And this is exemplified on the blu-ray when you can watch not one not two but three versions of the ending and they're all just variations on the same yeah. ending really because yeah. did you watch them yeah i mean i know one was the original shortened ending then there's yeah. the other ending where he kills gwen yeah and he sort of runs off but he kills the thing he loves most yeah and then there's the ending that's actually in the film where he doesn't kill her but she kills him yeah oh no there is that one where he bites her but she shoots him and it dies and yeah, um, yeah. And so 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 she's got the curse now as well as hugo weaven's character whose yeah, name yeah. is abeline who is basically just a slightly redress version of frederick abeline who is the detective in the ripper case which is alluded to and it's exactly the same as oh, johnny shit. depp's character in from hell so, so all is. they've done is just change the first name from frederick to francis but yeah he's played by hugo weaving yeah and this is the point where he comes into the film really mm-hmm. because all these people have been killed at the gypsy camp so obviously some outside force has to be brought in to investigate just what the fuck's going on in this small little village and this is the thing that i got a little bit puzzled by because he is immediately suspicious of benicio del toro we find out it's because of his background at the asylum yeah but fell a bit too soon really for me it does if anything he should have been a character that was brought in sooner once they found Ben Talbot's body, that's the point at which he should have been brought in. Yeah, to he should, investigate have, been, he should have been called in there and then. And yeah, then. and maybe perhaps he should have been a witness to the gypsy camp, and maybe his version of events, what he sees, he places Benicio del Toro at the center of it. Yeah, you know, something like that, like a miscommunication of events, like his interpretation of what's happened. Yeah, because I don't really feel that Hugo Weaving makes much of an impact in this film. I, I I like him in this film. I really like his work in this film, and he seems to be one of the few people, other than Anthony Hopkins, who's having some fun with the role. Yeah, yeah. But the film completely forgets him. Yeah, the film doesn't serve him well. No, it really doesn't. He has a couple of scenes where he gets a few good lines, but he serves no real purpose for the story. And in fact, he's something of a distraction at times. He's a subplot that they don't really care much for. <laughs> no, I have to ask, is this another holdover from the original version of the film from Mark Romanek that yeah. they've just not been able to write out with the time that they've got? With some of these things, we'll never really know what... No, uh, we'll never get to the bottom of it. It'll no. be locked in the universal vaults. <laughs> so anyway, this fever dream really allows for the uh, next full moon to kind of fall upon us. Yeah, and this is the funny thing, because in the making of documentary, they mentioned this um, full moon thing every 30 days. It doesn't feel like that amount of time yeah, has been Yeah, and they, they mention it in terms of it being a ticking clock. But there's nothing in the film that alludes to that. It just seems like, um, yeah, time passes really quickly. Yeah. 
And there's no allusion to, oh, this is the night when it's going to happen again. It almost happens by coincidence that it's the yes, full moon. Yeah, it does. There's never any tension or sense of foreboding about the oncoming full moon. Everything in between each full moon is just kind of like, yeah, let's just get to it. Come on, go, 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 yeah, go, go. Yeah, they brush over it with a montage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even Rocky make, had a montage. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to make time pass. One thing I do like about this point is that Benicio Del Toro, or Lawrence Talbot, realises that something is happening to him or could happen to him. Yeah. So he asks for Emily Blunt's character to go away. Yeah, to leave. To, to yeah. leave it. And she does. She yes. doesn't hang about because she wants to be there when shit goes down. She goes, all right, see ya. And off she goes. That's, <laughs> a, that's a character that knows she's in a horror film. <laughs> yeah. And it's only through circumstance that she becomes mixed up in it all again. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. I thought about that. So getting to our first full moon. This is a transformation scene that Universal wanted to cut a lot of the film out just so that they could get straight to it. Yeah, and it's a massive letdown. It really is. Again, it's played in shadows, this one, but it's not until later we get to see the proper transformation. But anything we do see, it's just completely CGI. It looks cartoony. it's really quick. Yes. There's no kind of pain or violence. No, it's not really an ordeal. The way they play this out is that he follows his father into this um, tomb, really. It's his wife's mausoleum tomb kind of thing and he goes down to the basement and there's more of a shrine there and you have this chair which is obviously what he uses to strap himself down sometimes when he transforms again the set is great though it's great the set and, is great but at this point obviously the game is given away completely that Anthony Hopkins is also he's a even got man. the kind of canine glint in his eyes oh and, yeah yeah oh, it's it's way too obvious I yeah. think this is the point though that they stop pretending that it isn't as obvious as it is yeah they just sort of give up with it but that's the thing as well with this point I would say there's never a point where there's a revelation that it's actually his father yeah it just gives up on yeah. the idea and then he kind of just shuts the door on him and then lets him transform and I'm just like for me i would have personally done it more like american werewolf in london when it's just him on his own and it's just something that he's discovered that's happening to him on his own yeah and he's got no one else there at all i just feel the staging of it's all wrong and then again it's just over far too quickly and the execution of it is so poor yeah because it's just all done in cgi and it just looks fake and horrible Definitely, but to go back to the performances, I actually really like Anthony Hopkins. Oh, yeah. Again, it's Anthony Hopkins. He's having a lot of fun. Um, his accent changes from scene to scene. At some point, he's Irish. At other points, he's, he's Welsh again. Yeah, I don't think um, he really cares. Yeah, it seems that the accent comes and goes, but yeah. he is having a lot of fun, and you can clearly see that. And I always like the line, I don't think they'll kill you, Lawrence. As he locks the door, he's clearly having a ball. He's doing his best Hannibal Lecter, yeah. really, isn't he? He's kind of bringing all that back up again, really. Yeah, yeah. Especially in the crypt scenes. Definitely. His hair slicked back like yeah. Hannibal Lecter. So. That's the other weird thing. Oh, I've just noticed His that. hair continuity is all over the shop. There's some scenes where he's got it slicked back. There's some scenes where it's all ruffled. and That could be a result of the five-week reshoots. Maybe. I don't know. But yeah, you are right. It does seem that there is this kind of weird continuity with the character. I wonder if it's in the five-week shoot that he's lost his accent. Or maybe he's gained one. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you probably stopped caring by that five-week reshoot. <laughs> yeah. It's more like, shit, I've got to be in this film now. Yeah. I've got my name above the title of this uh, turkey. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so this first transformation scene, like you said, it's too kind of cartoony. There's no pain. There's no torture. And it really lets us into the fact that when it does happen for real in the asylum scene, it's not going to be great. It's that first inkling that, oh no, they fucked it up. Mm. But I do like the scene that follows. There's an action sequence in which the Wolfman wreaks havoc on the locals. And I wish the film was more about this. It, yeah. It grows bigger later on when it goes to London and there's this kind of like 
protracted action sequence yeah. where it drops the horror completely. Yeah. And Unfortunately, this is another film. scene where um, it's spoiled by a CGI animal. Oh, so yeah. the first attack scene is spoiled by the CGI bear, and this is a scene that's spoiled by the CGI deer. Yeah. Not that this film is going for realism, but it, it disrupts the old school nature of it, it completely. Does. So to set up the scene, the locals have actually tied a deer up as bait for the wolfman, knowing that some creature is going to emerge on this night when there's a full moon. And they're ready to shoot it dead, really. And so here comes Benicio Del Toro's wolfman. And what did you think of him as the wolfman? Well, I mean, I thought it was great. I mean, he really gets into the role. <laughs> yeah, I really like him in this role, and I think it's when he is the Wolfman that the film comes alive, even though there's some iffy CGI going on here and there, mm. but he seems to really excel at being this beast. Yeah. That's when he's having the most fun with the role. And I like the idea that the Wolfman essentially represents his repressed rage at his father, mostly. It's the beast within us all. Yeah, it's the beast within us all, but it's actually linked to this uh, memory with his mother. This idea that he's been at this asylum for years and he's made him forget about the beast that is his father. And so this is really, again, it's this idea of fathers and sons. And and it all kind of culminates with this Wolfman beast. Yeah, because that's the thing. I mean, there's a much more grown-up film in here somewhere. So much, that yeah. That is uh, slightly sidestepped over because of the requirements of being a monster movie, in mm-hmm. inverted commas. But I really like the aftermath of this scene where Abilene arrives and literally there's just all manner of guts and organs on the ground and it's blood everywhere and there's bodies and dismemberings and all sorts of stuff and it's it's uh, delightfully gruesome. Yeah, I think Joe Johnson's having a lot of fun with this yeah. one because uh, <laughs> there is literally guts on the floor yeah. strewn about the place. This is a big studio picture and I, and I don't think there's been one this violent that's cost this much money. No, and it was his first R-rated film as well, so... Uh, I think he was just taking that opportunity to really sort of take the handbrake off. Oh, wow, it is his first R.A. Yeah. film. Yeah. yeah. But immediately after this whole sequence, we get the Asylum sequence, which I liked in of itself. Yeah. But um, it felt very detached from the rest of the action. The whole Asylum and running around London sequence felt like it came from another movie entirely. Well, to talk about the Asylum sequence first... I like the sequence in and of itself. Mm. I think there's some cool things going on. Uh, again, it's playing back to the idea that the Wolfman is this repressed rage and is a result of these repressed memories and emotions. But it jars with the rest of the film, both stylistically and tonally, because it just hasn't had enough setup. No. We've only had the briefest of mentions that Lawrence has spent time in an asylum previously in the film. And none of that is really played upon at any other point up to this. And it just hits us really hard. Yeah. And I always find it tonally jarring. I feel like we needed to see Anthony Sher's doctor earlier in the film. Yes. Or even as like a flashback to him or even just another scene where he bumps into him. Even like maybe when he was actually in London. Or, some, you know, something you needed something, yeah. some presence there of that asylum beforehand. Yeah, l- like that. And the idea that Benicio Del Toro's Lawrence Talbot is struggling to contain himself even before he becomes the Wolfman. Yeah, he needed to have been tormented by images of him being in the asylum. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. you basically wanted, you, it's almost like um, you need that theme of repetition. You almost like, the, like, there's a really good set piece in the asylum where he's basically waterboarded in this ice It's really upsetting as a scene. Yeah, but it would have been nice to have had that played in a flashback when he was a young man or a boy and have that same thing happen to him. So when you get it again, Mm -hmm. you kind of connect with it more. It could have been as simple as him drawing a bath 
and looking at it. And, oh yeah, and yeah. having a memory like of... that he's afraid to have his head under the water. And it, exactly, like yeah. yeah. But again, these are all character moments that the studio doesn't care about. It's so unfortunate. There's so much potential here. And this is the thing I don't get about studios. They're interested in this stuff, but they continually underestimate their audience in that they are more interested in all these other things. Because I think even if they've been able to keep secret all these problems with the film, I mean, the average person going to see this film wouldn't have been aware of the problems. Even with that in mind, it didn't garner much of an audience. There was no good word of mouth for it, so it didn't do very well. So it's that thing where studios, again, they just don't learn from anything that happens. No. Universal must have had dozens of these kinds of situations before, and they've not done anything different about it, and they've not dealt with it intelligently or with any kind of respect for the source material. And we've had the same issue with studios come up since as well. They still refuse to learn. And this makes me worry for when they're trying to reboot this again as we speak with this whole Universal Monsters cinematic universe. And I kind of feel that I wouldn't be surprised if this situation didn't happen again with those films. Yeah, there does seem to be some kind of production problems at the moment with the making of The Mummy. Surprise, surprise. And just for me, I mean, this is just a sidetrack, but the whole idea of a Universal Monsters cinematic universe it doesn't work at all for me because these stories, they do work much better self-contained because they're all cautionary tales or tales of woe. There's nothing in them that would lend themselves to being connected to something else. Yeah. And then you get this problem where the films have to force connections. Are we going to see the Wolfman somehow end up in Transylvania by the end of the film so that it can meet up with Dracula and then somehow together they end up going to <laughs> America to meet the Invisible Man? Is, it, is, that, is that the kind of shit we're going to have to see in these I, films? I, like, don't, I don't know how it's going to work. I just I have visions of some horrible Van Helsing style thing going on. Yeah. Because the thing is, all these characters have the potential to have so much depth and they're all tragic characters and um, just joining them up in some sort of, like, team thing just seems completely wrong because that's, that's all the end result's going to be where some of these things team up or join together. Continuing this line of thought, I recently watched Dracula Untold, which had some of it reshot so that it could fit into this whole universal monster universe. Yeah. But if this is an example of where they're going with the cinematic universe, mm. I don't want to see it. Because no. the film essentially makes Dracula into a pussy, just so the audience have somebody to root for. That doesn't work with these monster movies. No. They have to be the bad guys. They might yeah. be tragic villains. They might be evil villains, but they have to be the villains. That's what they are. That's why they're monsters. Yeah, I mean, the closest genre to the monster movie is probably film noir. When you think about yeah, it, yeah. you have to deal with it in a sort of film noir-esque way. Uh, and it's no coincidence that both genres kind of started roughly the same time as each other. I just don't feel like they're being made by people that understand what they actually meant to be. And that's the real tragedy of this film, is that it was being made by people that did understand what it was, but it was hampered by outside influences. See, one thing that I do like about this film, that I'm sure is going to be fucked up when they eventually get around to remaking it, (laughs) is that right through to the end, with perhaps a 30-second gap notwithstanding, the Wolfman itself remains a villain, even when it's our lead character, Lawrence Talbot. It might be killing characters that perhaps the film is set up to die, Mm. but it is a villain. It's completely uncontrollable, and it's angry, and it's dangerous. 
Yeah, it's, just, um, it's a complete Jekyll and Hyde situation. They really embraced the monster of the movie rather than try and turn it into something that audiences could root for. Mm. Okay, so going back to the asylum scene, it's here that we get our second transformation, and this is the one that's supposed to be the linchpin of the entire film. It's the uh, it's the big set piece. It's what everybody's here for. Yeah. They want to see a man turn into a wolf. Yeah. And how do they fare? Poorly. <laughs> he chose poorly um everything about this whole set piece is wrong for me I mean, yeah and pretty much all of this part was a large section of the reshoot so the the two main parts of the film that were pretty much reshot from scratch were this whole sequence in london and the end sequence involving the battle of the two wolf men and this one comes off the worst out of the two yeah uh, because it's just it's one of those things where it has to be in line with the blockbuster, in inverted commas, uh, way of doing things these days, where it has to be a big elaborate set piece. And uh, for the rest of the film, it just doesn't work. I mean, that's why this part feels so detached from the rest of it, because the rest of it feels quite small and contained in a certain location, whereas this is trying to be big and grand. It just comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And um, because there's so much CGI in this section, because it's literally filmed a year later and they're just racing to the finish to get the film completed, it comes off as being quite poorly executed at times. I mean, there's, there's parts of the film where transformation withstanding, other things that are dealt with poorly, like the doctor gets thrown out the window and lands on some uh, spiked fences. Yeah, iron spikes. Also. And it's, uh, it's all done on green screen with some other weird motion tracking. It looks so fake. It looks yeah. awful. And... Um, it's not necessary either. It's just one of those um, schlock gory moments that could have been executed so much better. But um, the transformation is probably poorer than the uh, first transformation. The only thing that is uh, good about it is when the, the teeth come through. That's the only bit that you really feel any kind of pain for the character. Yeah, that's my favourite part. And that's only in concept, really, is when you see its teeth start to take shape and you get a sense of, oh, fuck, this actually hurts. But even that's only really in concept. The execution kind of looks too cartoony and it's so far divorced from real life at that point that yeah. you don't really have any connection to it whatsoever and you've got all this weird stuff going on where his bone structure is reshaping itself and his skin stretching and you've got all these kind of snapping sounds and crunching noises and it's clear that the audio wants you to feel a sense of pain and a sense you know it wants you to wince with him but with the visuals you get none of that no whatsoever you're just completely divorced from what's going on on the screen and to compare it to American Werewolf in London really just highlights how badly it fares as a transformation sequence. And we were talking earlier about the American Werewolf in London that, um, yeah, it is somewhat dated now. Practically, I think you could do it much better now. Oh, yeah. For the time, it looks absolutely fantastic. But this is the thing that baffles me. You've got the guy who did the transformation scene for American yeah. Werewolf in London. Why the fuck did you not use him to do that <laughs> shit? It's so dumb. That's it's it. unbelievable. Imagine him doing that 25 years oh later. Oh, my God. With 25 years worth of technology growth on top of yeah. that. And I remember reading that Rick Baker said to them when they were making the film and he realized that they were going with a CGI transformation and he was showing him some things like when the hand starts to click out of place and all his fingers start to dislocate, he actually turned to them and said, I could have done you that within a week. Yeah. 
for cheaper. Yeah. And it took months for CGI special effects houses to actually deliver these special effects. Yeah. He's, I could do this for you in days for so much cheaper and it looks so much more real. Yeah. And he's absolutely right. It's so sad because I think it's films like this that have forced Rick Baker to actually retire. Oh, it's so sad. And it's really sad that things like this have happened to him, especially in the last five, six years, that things like this have forced him to say, I can't be arsed anymore sort of thing because it's this kind of thing keeps happening to him. And it's that thing where people think, oh, we'll fix it, CGI, great, can do anything these days. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, just not true. Yeah. just isn't true. And I think people are only starting to realise this in the last, say, two, three years. Mm -hmm. At this point when uh, the film was being made, which is around about 2008, I think people still hadn't quite realised that CGIing shit wasn't always the best way to do it. I think the film, uh, which was The Last Straw, is um, The Thing, the Mm. prequel because it just didn't land with audiences because nobody cared to see these CGI monsters because there's no magic to it. No. You want to see a special effect like this and ask the question, how the fuck did they do that? Mm. And with CGI, you know, the answer is always, oh, with computers. Yeah. I think CGI is a tool that when used for the right reasons is remarkable. Yeah. And uh, to use an example, Planet of the Apes, the recent Planet of the Apes films, are fantastic because of what computer graphics allow for filmmakers to do with those characters. Oh, yeah, yeah, especially Dawn. Exactly. Well. Like, just, that's a, an amazing film. But then you look at films like The Wolfman, where they're used as get-out-of-jail-free cards because they can't be asked to do these things in camera where they will look much better. Again, I don't put all the blame onto Joe Johnston, I would still say this is stuff that Mark Romanek should have thought about and instigated before he even left. This is things that they should have thought about months before he even decided to Definitely. leave. It just beggars belief that you would get someone like Rip Baker involved and not utilise him to the full. I mean, if I was doing this film, I'd be like, Rick, I want you to do this, 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 and this. Uh, can we <laughs> yeah. do it all practical, you please? Say, Rick, I am going to work you dead. Yeah, <laughs> over this film, you're not gonna want to make films after this. <laughs> for me, I think it's just, um, and he didn't. Well, to be fair, they did succeed in that. For me, I think it's just lack of respect, really. I, I, yeah. I kind of feel like if you're getting that guy in, you trust his judgment. You might have a couple of differences in opinion, but um, considering they ended up using the second design that he'd made, and it looked pretty damn good. I don't know why they even went through this whole weird process of doing like umpteen different versions of the character and wasted all that time. It just didn't doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. It just feels like even before they had all these production problems, it felt like it was having problems from the start because they weren't quite sure what direction they wanted it to go in from, uh, from the right word, from the beginning, yeah, really. From the word I, think, go. I think that's the impression I get from Rick Baker when he talks about this film and that they just didn't have a clue throughout the whole process. It was just a bit of a fuck up from the start. And that's just really sad when it, it just looks like it could have been so easy mm-hmm. when you've got all these people like Del Toro and Rick Baker who love all this stuff. Um, you should just let them to it. I just don't understand how it ended up like this. I don't know how it got this messy. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to the American werewolf in Victorian London scene. <laughs> because it is virtually a oh. run-through of the climaxing scene in American Werewolf in London in Piccadilly Circus. Yeah. It's just a retelling of that in Victorian London. But with none of the realism. No. And um, my main point with this scene is that it's just for everything else that's gone in the film, in terms of it being quite gritty and grayscale, yeah. this whole sequence is just far too glossy and colourful. 
it's totally out of place with the rest of the film. And again, there's just more CGI work in this sequence than there is in any other part of the film. Yeah. It's just completely out of place. I think this is because it was one of the major reshoots. I mean, the only thing I like in this whole sequence is when the bus goes over, and that's because they actually did it for real. They actually got a real bus and pulled it over. I actually really love that part of this dog shit sequence. Yeah. That when it lands in the bus and it just starts killing every motherfucker in there. And I love the bit where the bus goes over that guy's back and they kill. Oh, as well. I love it. But the reason that part works is because they did it. They actually physically had a bus and turned it over with people actually on it. It looked quite dangerous, actually. Yeah. So- I imagine that was actually the cheapest gag in the whole sequence yeah. as well. Yeah. Because yeah. it was all practical. If it was more of that, it would have been excellent. To be honest, there's nothing else I can really think about this sequence because there's nothing I can actually really remember that happened because all it is is just CGI wolf on the rooftops of a very hokey-looking Victorian London. It screams rush production. Everything about it screams rush production. You know, I'm sounding so down on the film, but I actually do think this version of it, the extended version, is much better, but it makes its flaws all the more harder to take in, I guess. I think the reason we're so down on it is because we really like quite large parts of this film yeah but they're dragged down by this other shit so yeah. it's kind of like oh that other crap wasn't in there this would be quite a good film it's like i love the first attack scene where it feels very localized it's around the village it's with these villagers and that feels like a perfect version of this wolfman attack you know with some cgi shit notwithstanding this just feels so overblown and unnecessary. And I do wonder what it would have looked like in Mark Romanek's version of the film if it would have been quite as overblown and cartoonish. Yeah. Because something tells me it's not. Because the holdovers from his version of the scripts all feel very adult. Yeah. And this is when it feels most like Stephen Sommers' The Mummy. Yeah. I think it's just that whole modern film attitude that big budgeted films have to be big yeah. in order to justify their budget. Or just their status as a blockbustery kind of film. They're always chasing louder and bigger mm. when they should be really looking for something smaller with more impact. Mm. Just because of what's at stake doesn't mean that we're going to give a shit. No. It needs to be something we care about. Yeah, and this is another little thing as well. So after this whole sequence, Lawrence ends up at Gwen's shop. Now, I don't know how the fuck he found where her shop was. No. Because there's no mention of where she works. Having an antique shop. I didn't realise she even had an antique shop. No, it's a reference to the 1941 version of the film where the lead female character, the love interest, does actually own an antique shop and she's the one that gifts um, Larry Talbot the wolf head cane. None of that is in this version. No. There's no real need for her to own an antique shop. It's just kind of like a coincidence that he actually finds it. Yeah, and... um... (laughs) He yeah, sounds all get, defeated oh, we, and deflated our, by it. We, well, the only reason it's here is to get her back into the story and for us to get our contractual obligation bonding moment in yeah. terms of our romantic kiss that seems very forced. Mm-hmm. It's very unnecessary. <laughs> it's yeah. not like a complete prude, but it was just like, nah, didn't need it there. It's it's okay. It's fine. It's, it's, right. it's inoffensive. But I do think that the biggest emotional punch of the film does come at the very end where it is Gwen and the Wolfman. Yeah. I know that that's what they're trying to set up here. It does feel a little bit forced, but it's it's all right. Yeah, because it would have been better if it was sort of like almost unrequited completely. Yeah. And you get that almost that moment of tension there, but him as the beast wanting to, um, let's say, consume her in a Freudian sense. Yes. Uh, well, it's playing with Freudian yeah. themes, so oh, that yeah, should yeah. be absolutely the forefront so, of to keep them completely separated and not kiss at all, that would actually add even more tension to the end, I think. Yeah. Um, and the fact that they're never together in the form that they want to be, that would have been better, I think. 
but I think they again it's one of those things where they have to sort of tick that box yeah it's that it's that Hollywood box that has to be ticked isn't <laughs> yeah, it yeah uh, and then again just really highlighting how detached this whole part of the film is the last act of the film takes place back up on Blackmoor which is where all the rest of the film has been taking place yeah. so it's really in the second half of the second act that's taken place in London yeah the asylum should have just been local to the village this film should have been completely localised yeah because I think horror films always work better when they're self-contained in a single location because the idea of containment is scary yeah once you make just a single location the entire world of your story you get a sense of claustrophobia yeah because I liked how they set all this stuff up as well I liked the isolated bleak nature of this black moor that they've created yeah geographically speaking it felt much closer to London than what I thought it was because mm. they kept jumping back to it and then back to it again yeah suddenly it's not as isolated as you think no it is. that kind of spoilt it for me in, in that sense that yeah that's my problem with the London scene as well so yeah, we go back and the action basically all shifts back to Blackmore and the house and everything. Yeah, because this is at the point where Lawrence Talbot is going to confront his father because he's come to realise exactly what happened to his mother and that his father is actually behind everything that has led up to this and turned him into this beast. Yeah, and he's already sworn in the uh, asylum that he's going to kill him when he gets out. Or Yeah. There is quite a nice set piece here before the main battle. It's actually one of the only parts of the film where you do actually get genuine suspense Yeah, uh, when he's walking around the empty house and then you can hear the piano and things like that. Yeah. Uh, we see the body of Art Malik's character. Yes, that's been um, completely... Uh, oh, it's been horribly mutilated. Yeah. It's just hanging in the hall to ward off anybody that's entering. It's a great moment, actually. Yeah. And him walking through this manner while you can hear his father playing the piano just tinkling on the ivory keys it's a really tense moment it works yeah i I do like this part of it it's just the next bit which yeah uh, unfortunately doesn't come off quite as well as i think they hoped again it's these moments in the film where it just becomes a little bit too goofy for its own good and to describe what's actually happening we get this brief dialogue exchange between lawrence and his father before they both turn into werewolves and start fighting each other and it's another moment in the film where they just completely drop the horror after yeah, all, all that all, all subtlety is gotten rid of for me it just reminded me of the um if we're comparing it again to the incredible hulk it's just like a hulk smash moment like the end of the incredible hulk it, it, yeah i'd say this is going back to a point i had made earlier this is the only point really that joe johnson wants us to root for the wolfman as a character yeah in that kind of superhero sense that i imagine they're gonna go with in this whole cinematic yeah. universe i imagine there'd be a lot of this in the yeah uh, and it's at this point in the film where the wolfman doesn't work for me because it should be about keeping it in darkness and shadows and it should be this dangerous beast and it always should be a villain Mm. and i don't like that they just in this moment even as short as it is that they try and make it a good guy Mm. what did you actually think of the action sequence it's all right but i think it's one of these things where i think they fucked around with it in post like i feel like they even messed around with the makeup afterwards like there's things that don't quite ring true they've messed around with the eyes and done weird things with the lighting and yeah added cgi insert hands and and less said about the beheading of john uh, <laughs> the better because it's probably one of the worst cgi things i've seen in quite some time yeah it's it's not very good at all no and it's from a special effects house that is actually um very very decent npc hmm. uh, yes who were behind a lot of the industrial effects in Elysium mm. and the um, spaceship effects in Prometheus, which are all of, of very high quality. Yeah, this is a real uh, off day for them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
But um, the thing I like the most is just the house being on fire. Yeah, it looks great. I like that part of it. Yeah. <laughs> I do wish we would have got to see more of Anthony Hopkins' wolf. Yeah. And see him playing that character. I would have liked to have seen Anthony Hopkins in a complete suit running about terrorizing people a little bit more. And there's actually a little thing that Rick Baker talks about in the making of the film in that they didn't actually get Anthony Hopkins in to create the casts for these effects until very, very, very late in production, even before he actually signed a contract to, yeah. to be in the film because it was that late in production. I imagine this might have been somebody that Joe Johnson brought on board then. Yeah, I like I liked uh, this about Anthony Hopkins that he just sort of went, fuck it, I'll come in. I don't care if I've not signed my contract. I'll do it for you, Rick. So <laughs> I think if you need it now, I'll come and do it. And uh, I like that. But I mean, I, I always have time for Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, I do so, as well. You know. <laughs> He very rarely slums it. No. He always seems to be having fun, no matter what. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing of mentioning is that in this sequence, Abilene gets bitten by the wolf. He kind of disappears in the third act of the film. Yeah. And when he does reappear, he simply gets bitten. And yeah. And then that's him done with the film now. Pretty much. It's in fact, does Gwen uh, come into the room while they're fighting and run away? She arrives after John is beheaded uh, and the chamber's in flames and she arrives with Abilene but then Lawrence goes to attack her but Abilene intervenes and that's how he gets bitten and then she escapes. That's how it works. Okay, got you. Thank God for my notes. I know. (laughs) No wonder we're doing it as a best forgotten movie. I only watched it yesterday (laughs) and I'm already struggling to remember this. Yeah, But yeah, she's chased to a waterfall. Yes. That looks a bit fake. Which in the extended version is set up early in the film. Yes. But in the theatrical version, doesn't appear until now. Yeah, this, this is where the whole climax of the film takes place. And we get one of three endings. Yeah. It's almost like one of those things where you choose your own ending. They should yeah. have done that. Like, choose ending A. <laughs> choose ending B. <laughs> but um, it looks like the wolfman might spare Gwen because it loves her. Mm. When it's distracted by the sounds of um, approaching villagers. Yeah, and she's got the gun with the silver bullets at this point. Yeah, and we get the shot of her hand inching across the ground towards a gun. Will she get it in time? This is an insert shot of the movie. Yeah. (laughs) This part. (laughs) But I do like that the wolfman still turns to her and tries to kill her. Because it is a beast. And it is the villain. This is the most when it feels like a tragic monster movie. Yeah. As it should. Because mm. that is exactly what's mined out of the original 1941 Wolfman film. Yeah. It is a tragic monster movie. There's something almost Shakespearean about these monsters. Yeah. And yeah, so the film actually ends with Abilene being bitten, which seems to me like an obvious setup for a sequel that's never going to come. <laughs> <laughs> and Gwen having killed the beast, surviving the ordeal. Yeah. And then we get uh, our final cut to the moon, which is simply a um, CGI shot from the beginning of the film, (laughs) repurposed for here. Yeah, that was the first note I wrote, actually, (laughs) from the beginning of the film. Dodgy CGI woods. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it, really. That's 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 the Wolfman. That's the Wolfman, yeah. Yeah. And um, that's the kind of impression I got of the film when I first watched it, because this is very much a missed opportunity. There is a good film in there somewhere. But um, it did leave me a little bit cold at the end. I would say it's a good film more often than it's a bad film. But when it's a bad film, it hurts. Yeah. And that's the problem. It hurts because the good moments are genuinely really good. Very strong. Okay, so that's The Wolfman. And now you've heard us howl about the film's problems and hump the legs of a few filmmakers involved. (laughs) But before we make our final judgment, it's time for us to look at the stats and facts. First up, how did The Wolfman fare with critics? 
So this is based on the theatrical version. Unfortunately, we'll never know the real picture of the uh, extended because it is just a home release only. Yeah. But the theatrical version has a score of 34% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's it's fair. Mm-hmm. For the theatrical and, version, it's very yeah. fair. And it has an average score of 4.8, which, yeah. Uh, yeah, for the theatrical version is uh, fair. I'd say five at a push. Yeah. Empire gave it two out of five, and they say... An uneven tone and the feeling of too many cooks mars the finished product, but there are moments of beauty and real terror, which, yeah, again, I think fair. Spot on, yeah. Um, going back to the um, extended cut, if that had been the release version, I think we would have had a slightly different a reaction to it. I still think it would have been regarded as a flawed film, but much more admirable. Yeah, I still think that many of the flaws that Helen O'Hara actually pulls up in the Empire Review would have still been flaws, mm. but lesser so. Yeah. It, with more character development, with more breathing space. I'd say one thing that the extended version does a lot better than the theatrical version is that the tone feels a lot more consistent. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just given more time to breathe. Yeah, I think you could probably could have added one more point to the average score, maybe another twenty percent on the Rotten Tomatoes score. Yeah, maybe. I would say maybe fifty-four percent, just within a sniff of fresh mm. for the extended version. That's how close it is for me. Yeah, and um, Roger Ebert gave it two point five out of four, which is actually just slightly over. And um, for the theatrical version, yeah, yeah, I'd say that's about right for the extended version. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he says the Wolfman avoids what must have been the temptation to update its famous story. It plants itself securely in period with a great looking production set in 1891. Gothic horror stories seem more digestible when set in once great British country houses and people with gloomy introverts, especially when the countryside involves foggy moors and a craggy waterfall. This is, after all, a story set before the advent of modern psychology, back when a man's fate could be sealed by ancestral depravity. I found it weird looking at that, that that's what Roger Ebert actually thought of the film, considering I don't think enough of that is played upon in the theatrical mm. version of the film with the background of the characters. But I do see where he's coming from in regards to it being a little old school at times. Yeah, he goes on to say how this old school attitude really clashes with the uh, CGI and the modern filmmaking techniques that they employ in certain parts of the film. So he goes on to say that um, in terms of the Wolfman, he said he would be more convincing if he moved like a creature of considerable weight. In the first Spider-Man film, you recall, Spidey swung around almost weightlessly, adding weight and slowing him down in the second film were some of the things which made the sequel look great. Uh, The werewolf moved so lightly that here that he almost cries out, look, I'm animated. Yeah, and it, yeah. it definitely does have that feel. I think we spoke about that as we've talked in this episode. Yeah. And he really thought that these CGI effects were really detrimental to the overall effect of the film. And he's right, because it does jar completely with yeah. that old school style that he says is where the film works best. And I agree with yeah. him, that is yeah. where the film works best is when it's at its most old school. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the critics, and it's now time to move over to the box office. If you remember, we mentioned earlier that the budget had skyrocketed out of control which means it's more important that the film made money for Universal. But just what was that budget? It was $150 million, which is just remarkably high. Yeah. So it needs to make at least, what, $300 million to be considered a not-flop? Yeah, <laughs> well, a not-flop. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I'd say to be a not flop, it needs to make its budget. Oh, just yeah. 150 million. To be a hit, it needs to make double that. Well, yeah, because we're not even including the advertising budget for this no. film, which would have been at least 50 to 100 million. So we're looking at a 200 million plus film yeah. here, really. Okay, so let's first go with the opening weekend. It opened in second place with 31 million, um, and it came second to Valentine's Day. <laughs> yeah, that classic. Is that a best forgotten <laughs> film, Gaz? <laughs> Out at the same time was Avatar, which came fourth that weekend, and it was in its ninth week. <laughs> <laughs> its domestic gross overall was $61 million, so it only made double its opening weekend in its yeah. entire lifetime. So quite and a big drop-off there. Very big drop-off. So the people that actually went to see it, the very few people that went mm. to see it, didn't go back. No, and didn't recommend it to anybody else either. And worldwide, the film made $139 million. So this is a flop. Yeah. It's, you know, there's not more we can say about no. that in terms of the budget. It is, <laughs> it is a flop. Poorly reviewed and didn't make its money back. That's it. Mm. So I guess, I mean, I think we're at a place where we understand why this film has been forgotten. Yeah. It's one, it's, it's one of those films that's regarded as an unfortunate misstep and has been brushed under the carpet by the people that made it. It's clear to see why the theatrical version is marred with problems. And the people that saw that version of the film did not care if there was another version out there that was even slightly better. And you can't really blame them because it is a horrible film, really. So, yeah, I think we can see just why this film has been forgotten. Yeah. But we are talking about the extended version. We have to always go back to that. That's the version that we are judging today. Obviously, if it was the theatrical, it would be a no-brainer. Yeah. It is best forgotten. Yeah. It's already been forgotten. But the extended version, is this one of the best of the forgotten or is it simply best forgotten? Andy, over to you. Ooh, I think in this instance, I would say it is best forgotten. I think it's worth a rewatch of the extended version because it's not an awful film. It's got a lot of things going for it. And if anybody who was very um, disappointed with the theatrical version, I think they'd be quite surprised with how much better the extended version is. So I would say, at a very mild sniff, it's just there and best forgotten for me, just because I think it's worth reevaluating. because I think the extended version does a lot to repair the damage that was done with the theatrical version. So you think it's best of the forgotten? Just really borderline. I'm just I'm very umming and ahhing again. So this is another difficult one for me. Well, I'm in a very similar position. We're in virtually the same position that we were in last week when we were talking about Steven Spielberg's 1941. I think yeah. in that this version of the film, I would say, is definitely worth a revisit. Yeah, it's worth reevaluating. And because of that reason, I do think it's only just yeah. probably best of the forgotten. And yeah. I, I, again, I do it not really like emphatically because mm. it does have its problems and those problems are clear as day and mm. they will hurt. But only because when the film works, it works so well. Mm. And it's because of those moments of greatness that are just kind of in this film at times. Mm. I think I have to say, yeah, it's just, just about yeah. best of the forgotten. Yeah. So um, it's like the hair off a dog's ass. Yeah. That's that's <laughs> like <laughs> That's that's the that's what we're talking about. So I'm going to say just best of the film. Yeah. So if you are interested in watching The Wolfman, do go and watch it. But I wouldn't rush down to the down to the video store and no. get it straight away. <laughs> Not you. Blockbuster. No, because yeah. I, I wouldn't rush down to the video store anyway because they're all closed. But um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, watch it, but in your own time. 
Mr. Darren Longberg, if you're out there, I wouldn't feriously uh, search for the Blu-ray immediately. I'd, uh, you know, save it for a rainy day. Okay, and I think that's all we have time for on today's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies, so please do get in touch with your suggestions. And in next week's episode, we're staring down the barrel of a gun held by everyone's favourite Bond. You've got it. We're watching on Her Majesty's Secret Service, starring George Lazenby. Was he Bond? Who the fuck's George Lazenby? <laughs> no, there was uh, Sean Connery, Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig. Was another Bond? No, no, no that no. Must, must be a mistake. But until That kind of stuff <laughs> never happened to the other fella. <laughs> no. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Okay, but until then, it's bye from myself and cheerio from Andy. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>